listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Father, this morning, we want to come before you and Lord, we want to lay our hearts and our burdens down. Well, this morning, we want to lift up uh, baby Hillel, and for some reason, things have not gone quite as planned, and, but Lord, nothing ever catches you off guard. The Lord, you knew that um, these issues were going to come up, and as your people, we want to ask that you would intervene in her life and in her little body. For some reason, her body is not regulating the blood sugars, but Lord, we believe you can, even in this moment, right now, you can heal her. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that. We thank you for modern medicine and for doctors and nurses that are so knowledgeable. But, Lord, none of that would have been possible if it wasn't for you. And so we ask that they would be able to be able to come home soon, begin their life as now a family of three. And, Lord, we also want to pray for the group that will be leaving on Saturday for those middle school students and those adults that have chosen to invest in a week of their summer to go and to lead these students. We pray for their safety and health as they're there. Pray for their relationships with each other. And ultimately, Lord, we pray that they would hear from you, that you would uh, convict, that you would encourage, that uh, your spirit would move in their lives. And Lord, if there's students that are going to be getting on those vans and in those cars that do not know you, that this would be a week that they would look back and go, man, that is the day and the moment that that you spoke into them and turned their heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Grant them faith to believe, Lord. And so we ask now as we turn to your word that, man, we're going to talk about some difficult things, challenging things. So you give us eyes to see truth and ears to hear it, minds to understand it, and that anything that is false, that, Lord, it would simply fall on deaf ears. Lord, we ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit, amen. You can be seated. So in your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew 22, but it will take us just a little bit to get there. And I'm telling you, first uh, service, man, they kind of set the bar high. There weren't as many people, but I actually got them to answer some questions. So uh, here's the first one. See if you've been listening. So who is a theologian? Everybody. Yeah, we all are. Everyone no matter how old, how young, everyone is a theologian. Everybody is searching for this answer of who God is. Some may come to the conclusion there is no God, but that's still a process of being a theologian. Then last week we talked about the things that we use to shape kind of what is truth. We use reason, we use emotion, experiences. We're going to talk about that today. Tradition, that's going to be a big one. But the trump card is always Scripture. But we have to be careful because no one ever comes to Scripture without any biases. We all have them built in because of our reason, traditions, the things we grew up in, our emotions. All that is uh, a part of that. So is salvation an event or a process? It is both. How we tend to describe it, we're going to see in just a moment, is this event. But we realize that this idea of salvation is much deeper and it is much more involved than what we realize. And we're going to begin today looking at the things that take place 
before we get to the moment that we think of as salvation. All right, last one. Is salvation a past, present, or future reality? It is all of it. We tend to think about that one in the present, but it is a past, present, and it's a future reality. And so last week, we began looking at what makes salvation possible with the idea of the atonement. And it was this idea of how does God make enemies into friends? And it was the idea that Jesus had to come, and we talked about the theories, that Jesus came to be our substitute, that he took our sin as if it was his own, and he paid every ounce of the penalty of that. And then he turns around and he grants us, he gives us, he clothes us in his righteousness. And we stood on the substitutionary atonement theory. Well, today we start diving into the deep end. And I want you to think about what we're going to talk about, this idea of theology and salvation as a playground. I stole this from Clint. He used this this past fall, and it worked great. So think about a playground that's got some fences. And these fences are important. These fences, we would call them, are the eight essentials. You go to our website, there's even some short videos now, two or three minute video. I encourage you to go in to watch those. So one, we would say a fence, a truth, is the authority of Scripture. The inerrancy of Scripture. That that's a fence that we can't be on the outside of that, that we must be on the inside of this one. Another one is the Trinity, that we believe that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yes, I know, uh, first hour I misspelled the word ransom last week. I've learned that. The full deity and humanity of Christ. That is one that we must stand on. We talked about one of the theories last week that dealt with that. Another fence is the spiritual lostness of all humanity and the need for regeneration. And we're going to, that's what's going to be talked about in two weeks with regeneration, the need, the purpose. We believe that it is absolutely necessary. Then we talked about the substitutionary atoning death and the bodily resurrection of Jesus. So atonement and resurrection. Those are some fences that we can't be on the outside of that. Another fence is salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the only way to salvation. It is not by any way, shape, or form a works. We believe it is all through Him. We believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that today. The Spirit is active in believers. We need to be on the inside of that. The physical return of Jesus. Now, here's where we can kind of be inside the fence. There are people that they believe, yes, Jesus is going to come back and it's going to be a pre-trib rapture. So they're over here in the sandbox. You know, they have no cares in the world. They're just playing life is good. They don't have anything to worry about. Then there's some of you that are like, you know what? I'm just going to split the difference. We're going to play over here on the seesaw. And we're mid-trib people. You know, we'll live through the first three years. And, um, and then we're going to be taken out. Then there's those. I'm going to put them over here. They're all huddled up. And they're playing a football. Because, you know, they're kind of, they're post-trib people. They're getting ready for the fight. And so they're all huddled up. in here. And it's okay on some things for us to disagree. 
And you have freedom inside these fences, and we're going to talk about that today because we're going to talk about something that as long as we're inside the fence, there's all kind of freedom. It's a lot of fun. We just have to make sure that we are inside the fence. So we're studying through this idea of salvation, and we talked about the atonement last week. So today we're going to be getting into the process of how does the atonement then get applied to believers? How does its effectiveness, how does that then become our reality? And it's the order of salvation. So I pre-wrote these to make sure I spelled them all right. And so we talked about the atonement last week. But who was responsible? Who led out in? Who did the atonement? It wasn't us. It was who? Christ, Jesus, the Holy Spirit's involved in that. God the Father. So it's all about who God is and what He did. We, we, weren't, we did not have any part of making, other than our sin, make the atonement happen. So then comes this thing called calling. So who does the calling? God. We don't call ourselves. We'll talk about that today. Then regeneration. Who's responsible for regeneration? God again. We don't regenerate ourselves. We can't do that. Then it gets into conversion where faith and repentance happen. And this is the first time we see the God working with human responsibility, that we are called to believe. Then we move into justification, what makes us right before God. And God is the one that does all of the justification. We, we can't justify ourselves. We would lose every time. Then we go through this process called sanctification, becoming more in the image of Christ. And this is another time where we see the combination of God working and that humans have a responsibility. And then the last part, one day the future reality is that believers, Christians, will be glorified. We're right now in this section of calling, regeneration, conversion, and justification. The question is, well, what comes first? We're called, pretty much everybody agrees on that. But then, does conversion then cause regeneration? Or does conversion, the thing that causes, or does regeneration then cause conversion? And then do those work together to bring about justification? What's the order? So if you can go and solve that, man, bring that back to me and we'll talk about that. Because it's hard to reconcile. But here's what I have come to understand in Scripture. You actually really won't. There's this thing of that God acts and God moves. And you almost, you can't really separate the two because what's going to happen, God's not going to regenerate a person that isn't justified. And God's not going to wait till a person's justified to then come back and make these things happen. It's almost like this thing happens and we, because we're uh, finite, we can't split these out. So today we are going to talk about the idea of calling. So remember, as long as we stay inside the fences, because we're going to be playing around in these today, some of us may get a little uncomfortable, and that's okay. Because what I hope happens today is I hope we walk away thinking a little bit deeply, more deeply about this whole idea of salvation. So here's the definition of calling. 
It's summons of God that both invites and draws the unconverted to Christ in saving relationship. That it's a calling that God does to a person that is unconverted that invites and draws them into saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Because here's what happens. When we tend to talk about our salvation, this is the moment that we tend to talk about. It's that moment that I said this prayer, the phrases, I've asked Jesus into my heart, I walked some aisle, that this is what we tend to describe. But there's so much more that is going on in order for that to happen. But taking the idea of calling that it's God's summonsing, so if you're a believer, this has happened in your life. If you're here this morning and maybe you're searching and you're seeking this thing out, I believe that's God calling you. But think about how you were called. Go back to your process. How did God use the things in your life, your experiences, the people? How did God call you to saving faith in His Son? For some people, you've got that story And it is that uh, maybe over time, raised in a Christian home, maybe like uh, James and John. And it was this slow calling over time that really there wasn't a time you really didn't know about Jesus. You were taught about him from you were young, and you're just kind of this slow calling that happened over time. But other people have this moment, it's kind of like Paul, and it's just this so defining moment, there's no question about it. You were walking one way, seeking after your own thing, and then something happened. And God changed your heart. Or you may be like me. I'm kind of like Peter. I had like all these starts and stops. Man, one moment, man, I'm going to live for Jesus. And then I don't know him. No, I don't know who that is. Man, I'm going to set my school on fire. And no, I don't know who he is anymore. And there was all this starting and stopping. And so we all have these experiences of what is the calling. How did that happen? But here's the main thought. Here's the truth. Here is inside the fence. Left to ourselves, left to our own, we never would have come to God. Left to our own, we would only have sought our own way. God had to act first in our lives. We never would have discovered Him. We never would have turned to Him. God had to act first. He had to draw our hearts and minds to Him, call us to Himself. Well, then it's where things get a little more challenging. So I hope no matter where you are in the playground, that maybe we might be a little more sensitive to those who are going to be over, you know, playing four square, and, or maybe we're going to be a little bit more receptive of thinking, I don't know, maybe those on the swing set, maybe, they kinda, maybe they've kind of got the hold on this. Because here's the harder question. When God calls, and we know He does, and that He must, Can that call ultimately, and I'm not talking uh, over a short period of time, but ultimately, can that call be ignored? Or, when God calls, is it specific and particular and effective that the calling will bring about salvation? What I mean by that, does God call only to make salvation possible? He's waiting for you to pick up. Or, Does God's call always draw those that will be saved? Is it effective? Now, we all probably have a place that we tend to hang out in the playground, but I hope we'll really challenge those thoughts this morning. Maybe you end up in the same spot. 
Maybe you tend to move a little closer to one way or the other. So when calling, you see two perspectives in Scripture. The first one is a general call that is cast out to anyone. And it's an outward call. And we're going to see it first. It's the outward call. You have to go quick to write these down. I'll go through them kind of quickly. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. It's talking about God declaring things from the heavens. Since the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day He pours out speech and night to night it reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor the words whose voice is not heard. And it goes on to talk about this voice going out and proclaiming that there is a God that the heavens declare the glory and He is to be worshipped. It's an outward call. It's a general call. But then you go to Romans 1.18, starting in verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness they suppress, they resist the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, been revealed, because God has shown it to him. And then it goes on to say they're without excuse. Or John 7 that we looked at this past fall. On the last day of the feast, you remember Jesus standing up in the temple. They've gathered the water. They're going to pour it all on the altar. And Jesus stands up in the midst of God's people in the temple. And he says, the great day Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. And it was a call to everyone that would hear. There's probably a famous one, Matthew 4, 17. For Jesus, again, is speaking, is preaching. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And who was that for? It was for everyone. It was a general, a universal call. But that call lacks something. It lacks the will. It, it lacks the ability to do what the call is calling someone to do. In fact, I found an example of this this past week. I found this old newspaper, never heard of it before, called the Scripps Howard Newspaper out of Ohio. And they had this logo of a lighthouse. And this was the idea that people live rotten lives. They're selfish. They're going to do what they're going to do because they just don't know better. But if we would just give them the light, then they would then make the right choice. It says, give light and the people will find their way. But you read through Scripture, and that's not what you see. The light, the true light, came into the world, and they still renounced it. They still stood against it. In fact, they crucified the lighthouse. And so just because you reveal truth, it doesn't mean that people will do that. Just because they know doesn't mean they're going to follow, because we, John goes on to say it in John 3, 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but the people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works are evil. So left to our own, left to their own, we love the darkness, and that's all we would ever pursue. There has to be a call out of the darkness. So then you see another type of call in Scripture. It is a particular, or we'll call it specific. It's an inward call. And this is where you see the working of the Holy Spirit in salvation. 
Here's some verses in John 3, or John 6, 37. And all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Every single one of them, it's specific. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You turn just a few verses to verse 44 and 45. It says, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, calls them. It's specific. It's particular. It's this inward call that makes the outward call possible. Or you have the story in John chapter 11 of Lazarus. It was a very specific call to a certain man of Lazarus, come forth. And what does he do? He rises from the dead. And here's one that can either make us uncomfortable or we're very excited about, Romans 8. And so starting on August 11th, it's actually going to be the day that we do our five-year celebration. We're starting a study through the book of Romans, and it's, it's going to be, it'll be great. This is what it says in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, what did he do? He also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So one of the things we need to understand, it's a package deal. That God is not going to call someone to salvation and justify them that he isn't one day going to be glorified. And she's not going to be glorified if she hasn't already been justified. But here's where we need to talk about the playground again. Because we read this and we probably should have taken a week just to talk about these words. So inside our playground, offense is that God has to call us, that he saves us, and all of those things. But we see the word predestination. So inside the fence, what do you do with that? Well, one of the ideas on one end of the spectrum, it's an idea that we might coin Arminian. And it says this. It looks at the word predestination, and it says God looks through the corridor of time. He sees who's going to come to faith. Since he knows that, then he predestines them. And there's going to be some that are probably here. Maybe we're here at 9 o'clock that are inside the playground, and they're somewhere over there, and, and that's where they are. But I want you to know, I can still say they're inside the fence. But another view on the other end of the spectrum, a, a, a reformed view, a, a Calvinistic view, and yes, I said the C word, a Calvinistic view says, no, God doesn't look through the corridor of time and see a decision. It says those whom, it's a person, it's specific, that God selects them, He elects them to salvation. And I know the questions are already rolling. What about this? What about that? How does this work? I know. But we can still be on either camp and be inside the fence. And so he uses these words. So here's what we're going to talk about today. Does God call? Absolutely. Both those on either side of that camp agree God has to call. Would we be lost in our sin forever if God doesn't call? We would all say absolutely. But then you get to the part, can people ultimately resist the call? So I read through Scripture, and it seems like some do. I read the Pharisees. They heard it. They heard the call. They resisted. Judas, and he had a front seat to all this. What about the rich young ruler? 
So if they did resist the call, first of all, I'm assuming that they were called. And then I have to assume that they had the power to resist God's, that their will was stronger than God's call. Those are just the things we have to answer. Then I read through Scripture and I see people, it seems like, no. I would think Jonah. That seems like he did for a while, but ultimately the call, it came and he did move and act and did what God had said. What about Paul? I mean, Paul didn't sit there and negotiate. He had one of those kind of boom moments. Think about Lazarus. So the question to wrestle with is, does the call just make salvation possible, or does the call make salvation effective? Meaning, does it make it happen? Who ultimately holds the power in salvation? So there's a parable that talks about this tension, and it's in Matthew chapter 22. So let's look at it today. It's this parable called the parable of the great banquet. And a king's son is going to get married. He has sent out invitations. And it's time for the feast. So we pick up in verse 1. Jesus again spoke to them in parables. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. So he sends out invitations, RSVPs, everybody RSVPs. Then it comes time, all right, it's time, the feast is set, everything is ready, come on. But it says that the people do not come. In fact, in Luke chapter 14, uh, in your footnotes, it might show uh, Luke as a parallel passage. And what it does, it gives you a little bit more insight. It tells you what some of their excuses were. It says, hey, I just bought a field. I need to go and check on this field. So if you will, please excuse me. Another guy says, hey, I just bought an oxen. I need to go examine them. Would you please excuse me? Another says, I just got married. You know, would you please excuse me? The point is that none of these excuses hold any weight. I mean, that field, it's going to be there after the feast. You could wait and do that. Your oxen, they're going to be fine. You can wait. You've had this plan. You told us you were coming. We're a married person. I mean, why would his new bride not be invited? So the point is, these excuses hold no weight. So what does the king do? Sends another invite or another reminder in verse 4. Again, he sent out over servants saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. So he sends word, not only is it ready, he wants them to know, man, it is pristine. I've got the fatted calf. I've got everything that you could imagine. In fact, I think he's saying, this is better than whatever you're doing. You don't want to miss this. But they're satisfied where they are. They can't imagine anything better than where they are. But notice, maybe they decide then to come in verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off. Went to his farm, went to another business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. So not only do they go back to what they love, they go back to their ordinary lives and agendas, they treated these messengers harshly and even killed them. They're tired of hearing about the feast. So when this happens, notice what the king does. In verse 7, the king was angry. He sent his troops. 
and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to the servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main streets and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So the king's banquet invitation, it was ignored. I think he's painting a picture of what happened when Jesus came to the Israelites and they rejected that. So the gospel then goes to the Gentiles to show the Israelites in hopes that they would then turn. But then we see this invitation. In fact, you go back to Luke 14. He says he went and invited the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, those that were outcasts, those that were in need, And then they then respond, and they're excited to be there. They can't believe they've been invited, except one guest. The king notices one person in verse 11. When the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man, noticed he had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without the wedding garment? And he was speechless. Meaning the king only had one requirement. You wear this wedding garment. You wear this wedding attire. But this one guest, he doesn't have it on. And he is a man, a picture, an example of a person that thinks he deserves to be in the king's bounty. Maybe he's thinking, man, my life's been hard enough. Man, finally, my time is here. Or it's a person that is trying to come in their own character based on their own goods, based on their own deeds, based in their own goodness. So then what is the wedding garment? The wedding garment is the righteousness of the Son. It's what the Son has picked out for us to wear. That the righteousness of Christ is the wedding garment that is the only thing that grants permission and acceptance into the wedding, into the feast. So notice what the king does. The king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, describing the results of anyone trying to come before the king in their own goodness, in their own righteousness, in their own standards. That is their or will be their reality. So then Matthew records Jesus' words that wrap up the parable. But notice the tension again. For many are called, but few are chosen. And once again, we see the two types of calling. We see a general call that went out. But that call, it lacks the ability, the desire to answer that. They never would. It didn't matter how many times they were invited, they weren't going to come. So then a very specific and internal call happens. So do you feel the tension? I know I do. I mean, how do we answer the question of, Can that call be ultimately resisted, rejected? Does God only bring things halfway and waiting for us to pick up? Or is God's call going to accomplish and save those that from that foundation's past, He knew this would be happening? Does God's call for everyone to salvation just leave it in the hands of each person? Or does God's call not just make salvation possible, but make it effective. But here's what happens. We read it and it's hard to 
bring these kind of into some type of cohesive, easy kind of bow thing. But then we think about, well, what about this person and my emotions in this and the way I grew up and, well, my experience, and we start using my reasoning. Well, if God is love, then he can't do that. And, but man, is God really leaving salvation in the hands of rebellious sinners that are only going to seek after themselves? So we, I want us to be aware of what I call creating straw men, because I do it. When we come up against these difficult subjects, we create scenarios, we create people, and I've created these, and I've even heard them used in discussions about this. And it's two different people. We see this. Does it make it only possible, or does God's call ultimately save those that He's going to save? So the first person is the person that wants to be saved, that has a desire. But if they're not elect, then they, they can't be saved. Or it's the opposite. It's a person that doesn't want to be saved. They want nothing to do with God. They're living in the world that they want to live. They're chasing after their own things. They want to have nothing to do with holiness and righteousness and the things of the Lord. But they're, but they're saved. How does that happen? So if they're elect, then it doesn't matter what they do. Well, the truth is you never see those people in Scripture. You'll never find them. God will always save a person who has a desire to be saved. But God will never save a person. He's never obligated to save a person that consistently and ultimately rejects Him. So the truth is, left to ourselves, we would never turn to God. We could not do it. But God not only had to provide the way of salvation and the atonement, He also had to be the very first one to act. But then the question is, how do we answer that question? How do we answer the question of, can that call be ultimately rejected? Or is that call make salvation not only possible, but effective? So the answer is, you're going to have to wait a couple of weeks. But we'll get there. So hopefully, you have a lot to think about. Hopefully, there's some discussions that you want to go and have. There's some scriptures that you want to go and search. There are some people in the playground that you might want to move over and sit at a picnic table and have a conversation. But I want you to take this away with you. If you are a believer, if you are a Christian, be thankful for God's calling in your life. I think it's something we can often neglect. Man, take this week and appreciate that. Let God know, thank you for calling me when I didn't even realize it was happening. But if you have a desire to believe, and I believe that's God calling and drawing you to himself. And that today, this morning, this week, that you would reach out to him and to seek forgiveness of your sins, to be clothed in the garments of the wedding feast. But lastly, hopefully, you have someone that you're praying for their salvation. And I know some of you do. I, I see the prayer request, and I mean, I pray through those with you. But do you have someone that you are specifically praying for their salvation? And if you don't, pray for God to reveal that to you. Pray for someone this week that's in Spain. There's going to be all kinds of pre-Christians, as we like to call them there. Maybe it's the group going to Louisiana, the middle school camp. Be praying for someone there. 
And we need to be praying for God to call, to draw them to himself. So whether, and hopefully we do have someone that we can be praying for this week. But I want you to believe as you're doing that this week, believe this last scripture. Because I believe it takes the tension and it holds it well. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And the question is they can't. It's impossible. They, no one will ever believe that hasn't been called. So do we just sit back? Okay, let God call. He's going to do this whole thing. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And the general call is not enough. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And it's not talking about what I'm doing here. That's part of it. It's talking about proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And how are they to proclaim the truth unless they are sent? And I believe each and every one of us, God has us in the jobs we're in, the neighborhoods we're in, uh, the families we're in for a specific purpose. That you were sent there. And it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim, preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, meaning they haven't uh, come to believe. They, the faith hasn't birthed itself there. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith, how does it come? It comes by hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. That it is a partnership. And God, I believe, ordains the ends, but he also ordains the means. And he has people that he wants us to share with. So let's conclude by praying about that this morning. Father, we are thankful for the truth that we get to examine and think about. And it's exciting and it's fun and it can be frustrating. Lord, thank you for giving us minds that allow us to search in relationships to do this thing of theology with. Thank you for the fences, the truth that is there to guide us. Lord, so help us to have some major time to think this week, to search the Scripture, to have some conversations with other people. Lord, for those of us that are believers, we are thankful for the calling in our life. And so for Lord, also for those that you are calling now, would you continue to do that? And would they uh, receive that call and to answer it? And would you grant them the faith to believe? But Lord, we also want to pray for those that you have placed in our lives that first we need to be praying for. And Lord, would you then give us the courage to have those conversations, to be able to turn a conversation to something spiritual, to find out where they stand with you. Lord, we could not do this on our own. Lord, we thank you that you are the one that is active in the atonement, is active in our calling, is active in regeneration, is active in all steps of our salvation. Without you calling and acting, we would be lost forever. Lord, help us to be grateful this week. We with our kiddos that are having fun um, at the water park today, keep them safe, help them to have a great time. Be with baby Hillel. And would you watch over all those that are going to camp this next weekend? Lord, I have no right to ask you to do any of that. But I ask in the only name that I know how, in the name of Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Spirit, amen.
Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.